The second reading is Psalm 74, which is on page 587 of the Red Pew Bibles. And it's the whole of Psalm 74. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance, whom you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwelt. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved panelling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We're given no signs from God. No prophets are left and none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Remember how the, Lord, the enemy has mocked you, Lord. How foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. Well, thank you very much, Royston, for reading that to us with passion and good emphasis. However, I'm still going to preach, um, so let's keep Psalm 74 open. It's a great advantage to the preacher when uh, a passage is well read like that. Let's pray um, with God's word open before us. We pray, Heavenly Father, for your wisdom to understand this psalm aright, or at least to begin that process. We pray you would make us wise, give us songs to sing and prayers to pray as a result of our time in your word this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are taking a break from Acts, where we've been for the last little bit, and returning to the book of Psalms, 
And the section of the book we're going to look at from Psalm 74 through to Psalm 82, they're all listed as Psalms of Asaph, or a maskil of Asaph, as uh, the little heading in our Psalm, Psalm 74 says. I always want to say, when I get the chance, that those little headings under the chapter headings in the Psalms, they aren't, they're not like the usual italicized paragraph headings throughout the Bible. They're not even like the chapter and verse numbers which were an addition from the Middle Ages, the things we're pretty familiar with. Those superscriptions in the Psalms are included in the ancient manuscripts of the Psalms. They are not modern. They're found in the oldest text that we have. And it seems to me, therefore, they're to be taken as scripture, um, which I, I often let this be out of my bonnet. If you're a regular here, I'm sorry if I've said that before, but I think this psalm shows why it matters. As I said, the heading is a masculine of Asaph. Uh, Asaph, if you're a bit short of Bible biography, is mentioned in the reign of King David as one of the Levites put in charge of the music in the house of the Lord. Uh, both before and after the founding of the temple. And Levites from Asaph's family continued to officiate in the worship of the temple. Uh, our, our psalm today seems to date from a time, doesn't it, when the temple had been sacked by an invading army. So maybe the temple had been decommissioned for the time being. But the Asaphites still had their role when the new temple was built. So that little heading implies that this psalm was probably used in the Old Testament services and was written to be sung. Uh, I don't know, it's worth pausing on that, is it not? Is it not interesting to reflect that God puts songs into the Bible? Presumably that's because he made us with emotions and we're all beings who feel as well as think. And the Psalms take that aspect of our makeup seriously. Uh, furthermore, the Psalms are intended for singing by groups of people as well as by individuals. And that's a reminder, it seems to me, that we share our emotions corporately. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to mourn with those who mourn. Maybe the second of those two is the harder of the two. But when you're having tough times... These songs of Asaph and others like them remind us that God doesn't intend us to resolve our struggles fully in private with him. We are to join our sighs and our songs with the people of God. In fact, there's even more, I'd suggest, in the heading. That word masculine, it's not translated, it's hard to translate. But it comes from a Hebrew verb that means to make someone wise or instruct so, when applied to the Psalms, it may mean a song that instructs or a song that is wisely crafted. In other words, this psalm isn't just a song, it's a wise song. It's music with a message. So, it's going to give us instruction. And that means, I assume, that as well as expressing our emotions, God intends this psalm to shape our emotions, to tell us what to think and to feel. So that's my little intro that uh, governs the way I'm praying for tonight, that we'd actually be made truly wise by this psalm, that we'd be given prayers to pray, songs to sing, whatever our situation, good or bad. 
Now, I don't know what you felt as the psalm was read to us, but the situation God's people were facing, which the uh, musical director of the day, the Asaph of the day, puts to music, was terrible, wasn't it? Let's look first at the problems which gave rise to his prayer before we move on to look at the content of the prayer. The problems which gave rise to his prayer. And I think you can analyze them in two ways. Problem number one is actually the main problem. And strikingly, that is God himself. Verse one. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwelt. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. So yes, it's a problem facing the nation as a whole, but it's more specific than that. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is in ruins and has been for so long that the ruins seem, he says, everlasting. And it's more specific still. It's not just Jerusalem in ruins, but the sanctuary at the heart of it, the temple. So it's really devastating, isn't it? The place which symbolized God's presence at the heart of everything is just a heap of ashes. And he draws the natural conclusion. God has given up on them. Why have you rejected us? Why does your anger smolder against us? Paul has a verse in Romans 8, which I think comes from the Old Testament elsewhere. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the psalmist here is close to turning that on its head. It's almost as if he's asking, if God is against us, who can be for us? What could possibly be positive if God is against you? So that was the conclusion when the armies of Babylon invaded Jerusalem under King Nebuchadnezzar. The people's real problem wasn't the enemy tanks or chariots. Uh, God was the problem because he stood behind the enemy or over the enemy, you could say. Now, I know that it's possible for people in unhealthy ways to see God's judgment on themselves and come to wrong conclusions as if they've done something particular that calls forth judgment. That is possible in an unhealthy way to, to get things wrong. But the psalmist is not making that mistake there. He knew his Bible, as it were. He knew the, the law of Moses said that if people turned away from God, they would face judgment, and precisely the sorts of judgments that uh, he's described here. And so he could say confidently, I know the real problem here is actually Almighty God. But it's very striking that he starts here, isn't it? I mean, at first sight, you might say the idea that God is behind the trouble might seem a really frightening doctrine. What kind of God is this whose purposes include so much distress, national calamity and destruction? But in fact, the alternative is actually more frightening. It'd be really terrifying if God's purposes could actually be upended by evil. It's slightly better to have a God whose mysteries we can't fully understand than one who isn't really powerful, one who we can rely on, and one who we rightly should fear and take seriously, rather than one who's weak, who we can't rely on, whose concern we can't be sure of. That's an introduction. Let's move on, because there is a second, more obvious aspect of the problems which give rise to the psalm, 
and it would be unhelpful if I didn't mention this one. Problem number two, the presenting issue, is the enemies of God. Verse four. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, well, crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. So a catalogue of disasters being listed. They're like wild animals on the rampage in the wilds. Or like rapacious land grabbers today, torching the Amazon rainforest to make it into cultivated acreage for beef farming. That's a sort of symbol for them. And they're not just chopping down trees, they're smashing up the temple's ornate woodwork. When the, the Islamic State pulverized those old Buddhist monuments... Remember them bulldozing, bulldozing all those ancient statues? There was an outcry, wasn't there? And this is worse for the psalmist, because it wasn't just cultural vandalism. To him, it was the one true God whose precious symbolic presence in the temple was being flattened and trashed. And God apparently does nothing. In verses 9 to 11, we're given no signs from God, no prophets are left. None of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. It's a clever pun in the psalm there. Um, The enemy, he said, has put up signs in the temple. Maybe their armies, flags and emblems. But... God has given no signs of his presence to his people. Worst of all, no revelation of his plans and purposes. The voice of prophecy has gone quiet. That, by the way, is as true a sign of trouble today as it was then. The bitterest blow to fall on God's people when they're under pressure is a famine of hearing God's word. People unaware that God has anything important to say to them or to the world situation. So I was trying to think of the equivalent to the temple being left in ashes, and I was tempted to get all nostalgic and find um, Google pictures of churches which were now nightclubs and, or luxury apartments or something, so we could all go boo-hiss to that. But maybe a nearer equivalent today is the sort of situation where churches get scaled back So that in the villages around here, for example, where each village once had a church with one minister or more, and the word of God was heard Sunday by Sunday, for a variety of reasons, the ministry gets cut back and cut back and cut back, and the voice of God falls largely silent in those villages. I mean, one example we've had recently, that neighboring patch just south of here, where there's one vicar, a good and godly woman, who had care of three parishes. And I see that the hand of the enemy in the burglary that happened there and the assault that meant she had to stop work there. And then further, in the fact that she can now only be replaced by a half-time post. It's hard to imagine in that situation how God's voice will be heard as frequently there. And when God is silent... 
the enemies just shout louder, reviling God's name. That's what happened here. So it pushes the psalmist to pray that very bold prayer of verse 11. If I can paraphrase it, come on, God, get your hands out of your pocket and do something. Or rather, do them in. It's really strong language. I thought Royston caught it well. It raises the question, I suppose, of whether we're meant to pray this way ourselves. Well, to begin to answer that, let me just note in passing that it's not personal vendetta that's driving this. He's not just trying to get back at the enemy. He isn't just asking for relief from the enemy, for his own comfort. Although I suppose that would be understandable. His concern is not for himself. It is for God's name. In fact, the enemies aren't really his enemies. They are your enemies, God, he says. In the New Testament, it's clear that Jesus told us not to pray against our enemies, but to pray for them. So there's no sanction here for personal vendetta from our end of the, uh, the Bible. The psalmist's concern is that God's reputation is at stake. Now, we thought about the two problems. In one sense, behind and over them, God is rightly judging his people. But also there's the problem of these enemies who actually couldn't care less about God. And both are true and both get held together. We need to hold both aspects of the problem together so we feel their force before we move onwards. The immediate problem, God's enemies are destroying everything God's people hold sacred. That's the presenting issue. But the more worrying side of it, the big problem, it really looks like God is his people's enemy. He's rejected his people. And if God himself is against you, then where else can you turn? And I think it's up to us to acknowledge without embarrassment that these notes are being sounded in the Bible. God's people were at rock bottom. And yet even when they were at rock bottom, they can still turn to God and make that a matter of prayer. I was telling people this morning that I had a lovely reminder of that this week. We've had the shadow of death casting gloom over us, a couple of significant deaths in the village, which will leave many folk here fearful and very sad. And I suppose the backdrop of the coronavirus with the sort of newspaper prognostications of one in ten of us being hospitalized. We ask, where is God in the midst of that situation? Well, I'm thankful that in the gloom of our situation, locally and globally, I also had the privilege of being at a funeral of a friend who knew that God was real. On Tuesday, I was in a packed St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge for Johnny Kingsman's funeral. He was not yet 50 when he died. And the last 20 or so years of his life were dogged by serious mental health issues. But through it all, he clung on to God. And Susu was very helpful. She said, it's so important for us to see this. Don't think for one moment, if you're troubled by depression, that God can't use you. Johnny held on to Jesus Christ despite the dark valleys that he passed through. And it was quite obvious to everyone at the funeral on Tuesday that he had had a huge impact for Christ. Probably wouldn't have felt that way much of the time, but he did. So having looked at the problem which gave rise to his prayer, 
Um, let's move on to the content of his prayer. Actually, I want another pause before I do that, because before we look at what he prayed in the, in the rest of the psalm, please notice, first of all, that he prayed. So even if I've sounded theological as we've looked at the problem, it's all in the context of prayer, isn't it? it sounds obvious to say it, but he talked to God. And that may be the most important lesson for somebody here to learn if you are at rock bottom as he was. Talk to God. Talk out loud to him. When you go through suffering, don't stay submerged in your thoughts and your feelings. Don't let spoken prayer get stifled. Prayer means asking God for help. I think too often we end up thinking rather vaguely about prayer, inverted commas, and it almost becomes indistinguishable from our thought life. Or God just becomes mushed in with our chaotic mental processes rather than existing as a distinct person. But he is a person, so we can talk to him. And the psalmist did that, didn't he? Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? How long will the enemy mock you, God? So I want to summarize the content of the prayer as we move on in the psalm under two headings. He prayed the creed. He prayed the covenant. He prayed the creed first. You get a a lovely gear change in verse 12. As soon as he begins rehearsing the great facts of God's rescue in God's people's history. He blows the dust off what had happened long ago when God delivered his people from Egypt, when Leviathan, I guess that's his name for the great monster of the day, Pharaoh and his army were defeated and their bodies left on the shore of the Red Sea. And when God provided for his people in the desert, giving them water, or when he stopped the River Jordan in springtime in spate, when they entered the promised land. So he blows the dust of all these great facts. He reminds himself of all all that so that he knows that God is equal to the problems we've mentioned. Of course he is, he says. You're a specialist in rescue. Verse 12, but God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. Then he turns his mind back further still from redemption back to creation. So not just the themes of Exodus, but Genesis before that. The day is yours. And yours also the night, sort of times of darkness as well as the times of brightness. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. No problem too great for that God. So you see what he's doing? He's saying the creed, as we do every week in our services. I like the story about Elizabeth Elliot. She was twice widowed. Uh, you, you may know her as the, uh, the widow of the, 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 the missionary who was martyred, Jim Elliot. 
So that was the first time she was widowed. But then she was widowed again by the death of her second husband, who was a theologian called Addison Leach. And she tells of how helpful the Apostles' Creed was to her as she mourned the loss of Dr. Leach. She used it to answer the question, what things have not changed even though my husband has died? So she'd had an unwelcome change, but there were lots of things she knew that hadn't changed. Now, of course, the psalmist isn't just saying the creed, he's praying the creed. It was you who split open the sea, you who crushed Leviathan, you who opened up springs in the desert. And I commend that to you. When you say amen at the end of the creed, use that little amen to turn the whole thing that you just said into a prayer. You did that, God. I hope I'll remember to pray the creed when I'm on the hospital trolley or um, I hope you remember to do it when you're up before an employment tribunal or whatever it is or when the next time happens that the cause of Christ takes a hit from whatever the next scandal is and the enemies of God are laughing. Pray the creed. Well, one final aspect of the content of his prayer, not just his creed, but the covenant, which is mentioned explicitly in verse 20, but it seems to me it underlies the rest of the psalm from verse 18 onwards. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts, Don't forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Don't ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies which rises continually, boom, end of psalm. And no fancy language as he prays. It's charged with emotion, but underlying it is that request of verse 20, have regard for your covenant. And just ponder that little phrase. God had made a promise to Abraham to bless his people. He covenanted to do that. He said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. God had committed himself to his people. I was reminded this week of the, uh, the NATO Treaty, Article 5, which is the cornerstone of the agreement between the nations of Europe and North America. It says this, the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. An armed attack against one or more of them, an armed attack against them all, as it were. Now that um, little pact there, Article 5, has only been invoked once, I think after 9-11, that act of war against the Twin Towers, they were saying, in America was an attack on all the NATO countries because they're bound by treaty or covenant. As I said, it's only been invoked once, But we could invoke the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with God's people that God made again and again. Whenever God's name is dishonored, whenever his dove, his precious people, 
are under attack and being ravaged by the wild beasts, as it were. Similar, is it not, to that NATO treaty, God's honor bounds to uphold the articles of treaty between him and his people. And he's saying, the psalmist, they've been attacked, your dove. God's temple's been sacked. So surely God must act. His name and his honor is at stake. See again how what I said earlier is... is, Similar here, his praying is not motivated by personal considerations. He's not just saying, give me a break, O God. No, he's saying, the enemy has mocked you, Lord, verse 18. They're your enemies, verse 23. So rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Have regard for your covenant. And I suppose the nearest equivalent for us in our praying is the way some people will sometimes pray, for your name's sake, Lord, as they end a prayer. For your honor and glory, Lord. It's that sort of motivation in our praying. Well then, let's make the equivalent things in our praying today uh, to match the content of his prayers then. The creed and the covenant. Time to conclude. Just ponder how this prayer, Psalm 74, was answered. The answer to the prayer came ultimately in Jesus Christ, did it not? He is the true meeting place between God and people, which the smouldering temple only ever pointed to. He's the one who died so we can be God's friends. So we can pray. So we can be in covenant with God through thick and thin in our lives. He's the one who is now alive beyond the smouldering ruin of the temple on Good Friday. Or the equivalent on Good Friday. Is the empty tomb of Easter Sunday. So we can have hope. So we can pray the creed. And pray the covenant. And I'd love to encourage you to do that even tonight. Maybe even before you leave um, the gathering of God's people this evening. Find somebody with whom you can pray if God has spoken to you and is uh, urging you to do so. Let's pause for a moment. We pray, Heavenly Father, with these psalms in the Bible that you would teach us to pray. Think of that request of the disciples in the life of Jesus. Teach us to pray. We pray you'd forgive us for getting cold to the calamities of the world around us and even more particularly the calamities of your people. Forgive us for not feeling those calamities and not tracing them uh, to the assault on your name and your honor, which often lies behind them. We pray you'd give us a concern for your glory. Help us to plead the covenant and to believe our beliefs to the point that we pray. We pray you would quicken our prayer life again as a church. 
even this coming Wednesday, we pray again that you give us prayers to pray together. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. <laughs> 